Yeah, you look great. You both look great. Look at me. Otherwise, it was back to t-shirts. Oh. Is, that, is that Paisley? Do I have that right or no? I think, I think so. I, I, any, definitely any a floral, floral pattern. pattern. And look at his belt. It, Dude, the colors match. I know. He's killing it. He's so on brand. Even the Taco Bell hot sauce I got it's on amazing. my pants on the way yeah. in. What kind of matches? What kind of trousers are those, sir? It's Amazon Twenty One Dad Collection. This, this is Adriana Goldschmidt. Oh, okay. This is custom. Looking good, dude. Thank you. You guys look. This good. was from <laughs> Wamanock Summer Camp, nineteen ninety nine. Dog, you're a veteran now. Yeah, this is three. This but is two, two in two on this. Two on this show. I. I Crack the ear open with you. You're the first person to come back. I'm going to make a point of that. Okay. You've ruined, you've ruined it. A repeat guest. That says Jeez. something. A repeat guest. I, I'm the mo- no, I'm the most frequented guest on the compound show. So far, you definitely are. Packy's Packy's coming back yeah. in a couple weeks. He's awesome. He's awesome. Doug, did you grow up on jet skis? Um, my friends had them. I know Josh is, is a jet ski now. Dude, I'm the jet ski queen. King. Josh invited America, me yesterday. America. Did you go? You I brought went, Mike out. We went. I, that's the picture. One of us today. fell off. One of us fell off their jet ski. <laughs> Who, which one do you think it was, dude? I didn't fall off. I flew off. Oh is the God. only I've, I are, these, the are, are these two seater, three? I mean, the like my friends would have the big three. I got the big three seater. Those things are diesel. I'm not putting anybody on it. No. Put the kids on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, like when you're on a three seater just by yourself. Though, I saw Josh flailing around like a seal, dude. Oh my I, God, I was uh, or <laughs> I think I was doing like 60 miles an hour. I hit yeah. somebody's wake. And I went off the back. Like, uh, my hands let go. There were yeah. no, no wakes. <laughs> no, not ice. waves. A wake. A wake, very a, specific a wake. wake. Yeah. And I went flying backwards, and then Mike was coming in hot right behind me. <gasps> he run you over? There were five of us, oh and we were, God. like, numbers four and five. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm on my back Crap. in my life, my life jacket. You can't really swim with a life jacket. I don't know if you know that. And you know when yeah. a turtle's on their back, they can't they can't flip, <laughs> they flip up. Over, that was yeah. Josh, dude. I so it took where's, like where's the content? Where's the content? It took a couple of minutes to like swim back to my ski, climb back on. But yeah. uh, did you, did you hurt? You get your bell rung on that? No. I, just, again, this is like a very regular thing for me. Occurrence. But this time I really flew. So the first time I went out with my friend Matt, you have that one kid with the pickup truck and the jet skis, lives on the farm. The trailer, you know? not Josh. Definitely not. Max Arioli. No, the kid is Italian as it gets. He, we, we put the thing out on the intercoastal. It's in Boca. We're going out there. He's, I'm holding the inner tube with the rope to the tube around my, like wrapped around my arm. Bad idea. We hit choppy getting out through the intercoastal out into the water. And it was just a choppy day in general. I accidentally let go of the tube with the thing wrapped around my arm. And it pulled you. It got tight. It got tight. It the could have pulled your arm off. Would have ripped. I still think about it to this day. How lucky I was that I punched him on the back to stop. Otherwise, it just would have torn through it. And later, you know how weak your Twitter game would be with one hand. So slow, so slow. A lot of spelling errors. It's not even funny. But I still have the scars. Isn't the intercoastal like calm though? Isn't that the whole point? It was where the intercoastal met the ocean, and it's inherent. Mm. It's inherently choppy there. Mm. I so, feel like you guys are 13. <laughs> I've, I've, boys are always 13. Like, wait, uh, didn't boys grow out of this no, in their 40s? No, 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 I guess worse. not. Yeah, I'm stuck at 13. I'm the youngest that I've ever been when my kids are away at summer camp, and I just have to occupy my time. I literally Doing regress. things you wouldn't want them to see you doing. 15 years later, a kid <laughs> a kid I knew literally did lose his uh, arm. Is that, that. Is that how we want to set the tone? 
I hope that wasn't being. Uh, no, we're going to just redo that. I forgot <laughs> we actually. I forgot this is anything. how we get the intro. We're not redoing anything. Um, <laughs> I'm so excited that you guys are here. I didn't realize that you were friendly. Like I literally, well, I kind of, I kind of did, but not, not to the extent. How you guys know each other through Instagram, basically, or it social, Twitter, it was, or it was social media. Was it social? I think so. Or it might have been like FinCon or something. I've never been to FinCon. Oh, then it's not. That. It was social media, and we had coffee. Down by my office. I've never been to FinCon either. Uh, Do we talk about this? I don't know. I don't think we talked about it. It's a big deal, though. Yeah, it's all the different bloggers and podcasters. I feel like it skews more personal finance than investing, which is probably why I've never been invited. They have a big um, advisory, like RIA area of it, though, too. Yeah, they created that part out because they realized, like, they were kind of, I think, probably uh, Morgan Howes will probably go to that, right? Where what? I don't know if I've ever oh, seen him there. No, Morgan does not. I got. An, I just got an email an hour ago. I thought you and Doug would appreciate the recommendation for the Taylor St. Baristas on Thirty Third Taylor Street. Thirty Taylor Street. What, what did I say? A coffee Taylor person Saint? told Taylor me about that Taylor Swift Barista. The London. If I see company. St, that's Saint. No, in dude, my street. What? I don't know why you <laughs> say street. Whatever. Why didn't he say street on East Fortieth? You ever he, been there? No. No, I have not been to that a one. A guy I know owns there. a coffee company, and he told me to go to that place because it's a London outpost now that just opened in New York. I this, was going to tell this you does Taylor Street Baristas? They should, they should yeah. change their name to Taylor St. Baristas. Why? Because you f***ed up the pronunciation? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Meet me on the corner of 40th Saint. That sounds reasonable. Uh, here's Big John. Coming in with three clocks. One. See how professional we are, Liana? You excited for this? I like it. All right. Welcome to the Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. How do hedge funds invest outside the market without touching Bitcoin or meme stocks? They invest in blue chip art, an overlooked asset class that is expected to grow by over $900 billion in the next five years. Contemporary art prices rose 14% per year from 1995 through 2020, so it's no surprise that over half of ultra-high net worth investors allocate over 10% of their portfolio to art. Thanks to Masterworks.io, you can invest in multi-million dollar works by artists like Banksy and Warhol for a fraction of the entry price. Both Michael and our guest from week one, Packy McCormick, have already invested in art on the Masterworks.io platform. We've partnered with Masterworks to let the Compound and Friends listeners skip their wait list by going to masterworks.io slash compound today. Welcome to the most exciting, the newest, most popular financial blog in existence. A blog? Wow. Financial podcast in existence. What are we doing here? Yeah, I still have a blog. That's very (laughs) anachronistic. Welcome welcome to the hot stuff. This is like, uh, this is the most fun that I have personally ever had creating content. We call it the compound and friends. You guys are the end friends. And the idea was like, we were sick of doing Zoom stuff. We were sick of like doing remote things. Let's let's get together with our friends and hang out and let's act like it's pre-COVID. But I guess this is post-COVID now. We're all here. We're all healthy. We're in New York. What do we think? 
I'm a regular now. Yeah. No, this is your second appearance. Yeah. Don't screw it up. Mike, <laughs> how are you feeling comes today? only to the city for this. Big time. Basically. You feeling big time today? I have good energy. Good, good energy vibes. today? Okay. Liana, how are you? I'm feeling good. All right. Back let's, with the boys. Let's do it. We, we love having you here. Oh, and John is here. And Duncan Hill is here. Whole gang is together. And uh, here we go. I want to first introduce Liana because you've not been on the show yet, um, but you are with Blackhawk Financial. Just give us like a quick 30 minute rundown of. of <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'll take the over the show then. Of what, of what you're up to these days. So I have a company called Blackhawk Financial. We do marketing and business development, mostly in the alternative space with different funds. And a few years ago, I wrote a book called Young, Fun, and Financially Free, which is- We have it here. Did you see it? Yeah, I did actually. And it's uh, it's primarily a millennial book, Money 101s, Everything Spending, Saving to Investing. And that's what sort of brought me into the media and social media space. I'm mostly on Instagram, but- on Twitter a little bit. I started off more on Twitter, but now I do a lot more graphically entertaining Your things. stuff is funny. Thank I like, you. It's good. I like the memes, entertaining stuff, teaching people about money and investing. And yeah, that's sort of how I got to meet Doug and, and you guys is through the, the media world and helping educate young well, people. Welcome to uh, welcome to the compound. We're going to start with some RIA stuff. I had, I had to start with this because I feel like it's a, a big deal on a lot of levels. We're going to congratulate Ron Carson. Big time. So basically what's happening here is he had a private equity firm that he had sold 29% of his business to five years ago. Longridge. Right. So yeah. they had $6.5 under management when they sold the stake. And it looks like the stake has been resold to the biggest private equity firm or one of the top three, Bain mm-hmm. uh, and Company, bought that stake, which values Carson Group now at a billion bucks. And he's managing, what is the number? 18 billion? Yeah. Okay. So I had a couple of thoughts. The first is every RIA owner in America read this <laughs> on, at Investment News or wherever it was published and did the calculation in their head of their own AUM, what the multiple was, and had like a nice daydream. Uh, did you not? Oh, a hundred. Yeah, of course. We're good. We're, when we're, I say every, myself, myself yeah. included, is that what you did? Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I sold. I sold. You, to reached, you reached out to the investment bank mentioned in the story. Yeah, I reached out to Payne Capital, and you know, I mean, you struck a deal. But most firms do not have the scale that Carson has. Right. Most like so, we did the math. What did we say? It was the multiple is like six percent of his assets. Yeah, but but there's a huge but. The but is he has two other business lines that do not show up in the AUM calculation. Correct. He does how much, how much value are those business lines to Bain? I don't know. If they're recurring, I guess one dollar is as good as another dollar. Well, I think that's what makes the valuation a mystery here. Is you know, Ron, and I think for anyone like a Ron, you know, a Rick Edelman, the the scale, like you said, uh, I would love to take a look at you know the numbers. What's under that hood there to really dive into it? I would simply be like, okay, what multiple of my revenue would I get? Because that's really all all there is. Big dogs like this. There are maybe 10 companies in our industry. There are 18,000 RAAs. There are maybe 10 of them that are that could potentially have a value of a billion dollars in the, in the near term. So it's a very unique asset. And private equity loves our, our space mm-hmm. because it's annually recurring revenue. Hold up. Budget based on it. I, I, I gl- Would you just get an offer? I just got hot off the press. <laughs> I actually did. On the way in, I'm, I'm not making this up. On the way in, driving in today, I get a call. 
um, from someone who says they're at, you know, they were literally seeing if I wanted to sell the practice. I'm not kidding. It was a RIA. It was a PE backed yeah, RIA aggregator, week. right? I mean, that's like telling me you got a robocall. Listen, dude, listen, <laughs> do you get gassed up from that? Listen, <laughs> it's a big deal. I'm not big time. Yeah, like congrats, you. Congrats, Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. I'm like this guy over here. Um, I asked them. I'll like, match that offer. <laughs> I asked them, and I knew they wouldn't like necessarily give me the right answer. I asked them, like, what what multiple are you giving on the target practices you want? And we always operate under like two, you know, two to three. They said five to nine, depending on five to nine what? uh, Five to nine um, revenue. So wow, Goldman which is insanity. you're going to bring up uh, United Capital right now. So Goldman paid uh, what did they pay? Seven fifty. Yeah. When United Capital was $25 billion, what would it be worth today? So mm. they paid seven – I mean – Over a billion then. Probably two. Mm-hmm. Maybe two. Everything's only gone in one direction. So I don't really know what to make of it other than I really wanted to ask. I'm like, what are you paying just on you know gross revenue? And it was five to nine, which seemed astronomical to me. I don't know how you, you – The difference is they're keeping Ron Carson. He's 56 years old. This guy's got like 20 good years in him. Easily. As a, as a business leader – Whereas Goldman bought the whole thing. Yeah. They didn't like buy a stake in it. Mm-hmm. They took it. They took it. So that's two different things. Um, and then what would you even do? How old are you? 36. What, what What would you do if you sold your firm today, even uh, for a big number? Would you tweet memes? Uh, the dream is probably up. stop tweeting. Coffee shop in the morning, um, bar, like a speakeasy in the evening in my town. All right. Liana, you get a, you get a bid for Blackhawk Financial tomorrow. Then what? I, honestly, this one is kind of out of my space because I'm not an RAA, but not yet. Not We're yet, on it. but <laughs> I've been told many a times I probably should be. I bet you have. <laughs> but I mean, I guess it's only natural for us to be seeing more and more of this with money, market share moving from the brokerage side into independent. But how many deals of these are we seeing? Like, I, again, I'm not that caught up on seeing these types of transactions, but is this something that's really common for you guys now in the RAA space? Not this big. The reason we're talking yeah, not about this it is big, the size. But yeah, I it's, mean, it, it's happening. A lot of it is being driven by just people needing a, an out to retire. Yeah, I think the smaller people go to the fo- uh, was it Focus Financials of the world. Focus Financials probably doing a deal a week. Yeah, they're probably doing fifty deals. They're a, like a the year. Tig- they're like wow. the Tiger Global of our. That's space. the most voluminous way to do that. If you're like a sole prop or a, an ensemble practice, you could probably walk right in there and sell. So I got a call. Stuff. I got a call. I got a call like three months ago from a guy that. Uh, has not really been nice to me, like pu- publicly, like <laughs> giving quotes to reporters about me on stories that nobody even asked me for a quote. Just doesn't like you. But I ended up speaking to him. It's fine. He doesn't dislike me. He just like was making a name for himself by, by I guess, referencing me, yeah. which is okay. It happens. Um, but he just got like a big check from a private equity firm and they told him, take this money, go buy people, which is happening, I, th- I think, all over the country. Yeah. So he calls me up. He's like, listen, we have amazing back office and we have great marketing and we have in-house compliance. And I'm like, dude, I appreciate it. We built all that. What do I need you for? That's the standard line, though. They want to give you the, – the, Which uh, makes sense if you haven't yes. built it. I think the majority of people well, – again, you know, we run, I would like to think, really neat operations here. But I'm under the impression that most advisors who are the single solo or ensemble – 
you know, they're 60 something. What's the average advisor? They're like, not going to build it. Right. They don't, they, they have, they haven't built it or they haven't built it up enough to even be in a position. I think they got a lot of work ahead of them to, um, refurbish what they currently have into modern times. Like they're working, they got paper in the office. Right. I, I, I think there's, I think there's just going to be this 10 year run of more rollups, more, there are too many firms. We all know that. Like, it's not a secret. I feel like we're in like year four at least. I think it's a demographics thing. Right? Like we're this we're been, young. This has, been, this has been going on. Year four of takeovers? Yeah. Like year there's, 10. There's been, yeah, it's been happening for a while. This is where young. If you're 60 to 70 and you haven't created a secession plan yet, you're getting a out here. Thank you. I try to tell that to Barry every day. All right. (laughs) No, Barry's Barry's been very good about that. Okay. um, Let's pivot because we have a a hedge fund expert in-house or an alternatives expert in-house. I'm not obviously an expert on the space, but I watch it closely. I'm fascinated by it. It looks like this is a good year for the typical hedge fund, but it's a really shitty year for the famous hedge funds, at least based on my read of this. So this is Bloomberg. Despite the single-digit returns of many large investors, the industry overall saw some of the strongest first-half gains in years. Hedge fund research's fund-weighted composite index was up 10% in the first six months of 2021, while its equity index surged 12.7%. So not bad, still trailing the S&P 500, but most of these firms are trying to do something very, very different from the S&P 500. Um, But then you have a lot of famous firms that are struggling. Um, Liana, what'd you take away from this? I think a lot of what this is about is sort of comparing apples to oranges. Like I don't really think in a lot of this particular article, it's saying, you know, the differences between the performance of 2020 and 2021 first half so far. But I mean, the, the average performance of hedge funds overall since 2009 has not been higher at all since 2020. And so we don't really get those opportunities like we did March last year very often for them to leverage and take advantage of. Right. So it's kind of, it doesn't really make sense to compare like um, D1 Capital having 50% in 2020 to their 4% in the first half of 2021 so I far. would take that two year. Like, you know? like, like if I, if I could have 2020, I could live with what they're doing in 2021. For sure, yeah. Right. But it's, you know, it's a different environment this year. So again, the 2020 returns, they haven't seen them since 2009, which is kind of cool. But to compare it to first half of 2021, it's just not, the same thing. So, so it's also 2009 weird, like, was like a very similar year to, I guess, 2020. Yeah. There's that opportunity like, there, right? Right. The market like completely buckling in the first quarter and then you spend the whole year coming back. So if you were if you were bold and you did a lot of buying in the first quarter, you had a great year. Yeah. I mean, if only Both I wasn't times. graduating college in 2009. Right. <laughs> it would have been great. I did great in 2020 as well, but right. it's a totally different story this year. I think it's still weird to talk about hedge funds as an asset class. It would be like saying the mutual fund industry had a good or bad year and you're just lumping in like commodities and bonds and Yeah, because they're all different and, strategies, right. different assets well, within them. They're breaking that out though. Yeah, but even still, like a lot of, I mean, you could talk to the self-reporting nature of all, a lot of these indexes. Like do they really reflect the average hedge fund? They don't no. because <laughs> the ones that leave drop out of the index. The ones that, the hedge funds that close drop out of the index. They stop reporting. And so their track records are gone too, and they were probably shitty track records. So probably the experience of the average hedge fund might be even worse. Um, this thing with um, this thing with point seven two is worth getting into. So they basically lost five hundred million uh, five hundred million dollars backing um, backing Plotkin at the firm that was blown up by GameStop. And you just think about how many people made money 
trading like meme stocks and stuff this year. And I was just thinking like only – this is the only business on earth where the average person who knows absolutely nothing, even though we're only talking about it six months, the first half of this year, yeah. could be doing that well and Steve Cohen could be, be having this bad of a, of a year. Um, not that it's catastrophic for no. them. They'll be fine. But like can you imagine like three guys that have never picked up a hammer or a nail building a house as well as <laughs> – Somebody who's been building homes for 25 well, that's years. Why we, that's why we trade because there's there's always a way. This also seems like a very short-sighted headline in that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I view it. I kind of view it like this. Cohen maybe had, you know, averaged down his investment in Melvin Capital. That's what he did. Right. And so he's trailing because of a short-term loss when Melvin Capital's talent, you know, seeps talent in terms of what they do. And I think potentially long-term, it's probably a great decision for him to, you know, Take a five hundred dollar whack to what you know. We'll, we'll find out. Well, there, e- even with the loss, he's still up five x of yeah. when he got the stake in it, uh, twenty fourteen. How so. much? How much money? How much outside capital does he have versus like his own money in that thing? Oh, how like how much is he seeding other uh, firms with? I think all of them are doing a lot of that because it's hard to keep somebody who's like a like a very hot portfolio manager. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to go out on their own. So you either can say that's my competitor. Or you can say, "Here's two hundred million dollars. I'm Imagine, seating you." Yeah. You know, so I think I think there's a ton of that. And you saw that. You saw Julian Robertson doing that for um, decades. Uh, it looks like Ken Ken Griffin is down three percent from the two billion dollars he had to give. Uh, he had to give Melvin Capital. That doesn't sound so 3%? bad. Three percent. Why are we even Cares. talking about this? Yeah. Yeah. They're gonna make money. Three percent. That's what I think. A, a lot of the stuff I found in this particular article was like headline flashy, yeah. but really, does this have any real impact on what they're doing or their yeah. overall performance year to year, decade to decade? No. Are you telling me that there was an article that didn't have re- relevance? <laughs> I find that hard to believe. For uh, a headline, like just macro- a flashy headline right, with so a they, bunch of They break filler. it out. The macro funds had trouble this year because you had this huge run in the 10-year treasury and it was up 83 basis points in the first. It was up, it was up 100% at one point on the year and now it's only up 40-something percent. So that's a whipsaw. Whoa, what did you just say? Did you just say the 10 years up 40% and now it's? It's up 40% year to date. At at one point it was up 96%. We don't do do that here. Well, we don't do percentages on percentages. Yeah, I thought I heard you. All right, we'll go back to basis points. (laughs) Um, The 10 years surged 83 basis points in the first quarter. But then it didn't last. So that's a whipsaw. Um, Growth versus value was a whipsaw, right? They ran the value stocks up and now that's over. Place done. Growth, Growth came back. All right, that's all I got on this. I just I found it interesting. They look at like the biggest fun, fun the the biggest funds. Third point seems to be doing great. They always seem to be doing great. Uh, but then a lot of these really well known funds are like back to low single digit returns, three percent, four percent, and it's not been a tough year to make money to be honest. The, the, these headlines are how you how you just provoke the the Reddit. I don't want to make and, anybody and, mad. And the, and the meme. No, not you. I just mean like the headlines. It's like how you get the meme stonkers, you know, all yeah. riled up and get them back. They, I feel like the press just wants that story back because it was so sensational. Liana, what's the biggest misunderstanding about alternatives that you hear when people in the media, uh, myself included, are talking about these funds or these strategies? Um, I would say that sure they are risky, but I wouldn't say that investing in a long-term manager with a wonderful track record of performance is any riskier than giving your money to, an, to a financial advisor. Right. Well, depends on what they say they're going to do with it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, so, okay. 
Um, and how much you're actually, you know, even with your with your RIA, like, are you actually watching what this guy is doing or this woman is doing? How often do you look at your own portfolio? How often are you doing reviews? Um, so I would say that it's not necessarily any riskier depending on who you're putting your money with. So you feel like it's you feel like it's within the competence of most people to even be able to vet a hedge fund manager, or mostly no. you have to count on <laughs> just getting a little bit lucky with who you pick. I think most people decide to make alternative investing decisions based on their peers. And I know this guy, I know this guy, but a lot of people do that with their financial advisors as well. Oh, I agree. And and, and if you're not an expert in the industry in any way, it's going to be hard for you to vet an RIA in the same way. So I agree. And then maybe the the other issue with that is if you're if you're betting on the biggest winners, I mean, this is assuming you have access to the best hedge funds mm-hmm. and almost nobody does. But let's say you do and you have this whole process and you work with consultants, et cetera. Oftentimes you buy somebody after they, they were the number one performer of the year. Like that was it. Yeah. Like they often, there's a a thing that we kind of say in the industry too, like often your first fund is your best fund. So if you can find uh, an emerging manager or or a manager that's gone out on their own to start their own fund and you somehow find out about their launch through your other high net worth investor friends, that might be a great opportunity um, to go in on someone's first fund because they do usually say that that's so the one that So then you probably have to best. do like five of them. Yeah, because it's always going to be the flagship fund that takes off for the first five to 10 years. And, you know, that's what everybody gets hyped about. But then they start building funds around that and the firm grows, but you're not necessarily going to get the same returns as whatever the breakout fund was. Right. Then they start trading natural gas futures and it's all over. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see in this article, though, it was, I mean, not surprising, but about Impala and Glenview, their uh, commodities and resource-based hedge fund, and then the other um, Glenview is healthcare-based hedge fund. Like, those returns are insane, but obviously, you know, completely makes sense given the what commodity prices are doing and how people are investing in, relying in, talking about everything to do with healthcare at the same time. So Impala, 49% year-to-date. Yeah. That's wild. Can't possibly think that that's going to repeat. No. Like you just had oil price go from zero to 75. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, <laughs> again, na- nature of the market and commodity prices, what they're doing right now, but right. it's still pretty crazy to see. Right. I guess if you have them as part of your portfolio, you can say, see how smart I was. Yeah. I- <laughs> that's, that's what we all do, isn't it? <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Scott Galloway, 80s test. This is one of the funniest things that I, I never uh, I never heard this before. I wonder if he made it up. He's talking about disruption to banks, which I want to get into with you guys. But um, this is the 80s test. This is Scott. Put yourself smack dab in the center of the store, product, or service. Close your eyes. Spin around three times. Open your eyes. And ask if you'd know within five seconds that you were not in 1985. Theaters, grocery stores, gas stations, dry cleaners – University classes, doctors' offices, and banks still feel as though you can run into Ali Sheedy or the Bengals. Is that reference that you're too young for that reference? I I did make a note. I don't know who Ali Sheedy or the Bengals is. You're but, better off. But this kind of you know theaters. I, you know I went to a theater or two when I grew right. up. I only got the Bengals <laughs> reference. You got the Bengals <laughs> reference. Yeah. Okay, you're you're right on the on the tail end of who should even know what that is. Yeah. Okay. Um. So yes, most bank branches you walk into, if you took the '80s test. You would have no idea what year it is. And so what he's pointing out is those are the types of businesses that are most ripe for disruption. Um, are either of you guys using neobanks? I know you are. Using Marcus? Is that um, a neobank? I wouldn't consider that. No, it's a bank bank. It's a bank. Well, it's connected it's to Goldman Sachs. Yeah. yeah. Um, would you put your money in an app? 
Yeah, I don't have a problem with like uh, adopting early technology. I would avoid Chime apparently, which we'll get to. But mm-hmm. um, I still use traditional banks. So Galloway said it's hard to imagine an industry more ripe for disruption than the business of money. And man, is he right? Yeah. Uh, John, throw this chart up. So we've got we've got uh, fintech just raised thirty billion dollars. One out of every five venture dollars in Q two went into fintech. This is remarkable. We went to we went to uh, was it like a riskalyze conference in twenty fourteen? It's like a fintech conference. Benzinga. Benzinga. That's right. And I thought like this is a joke. Like what are the what is this Robinhood? What is this company? And that was like many hundreds of billions of dollars ago for fintech funding. Right. And I got to say, I am, I'm thrilled with this because I am trying to refinance my home for the last six months. And it's an absolute nightmare, like top to bottom. Really? They're asking me about specific charges and bank transfers and yeah. not like giant amounts, but like, oh, I see you went out to dinner last Thursday. I'm like, oh, why wow. is that relevant? I've been, I saw, I, I called my broker and I said, Wait, I kind of- this is in the middle of a loan. Right, I'm, I'm making process? up the I'm making up the dinner part, but other than that, like <laughs> we should be. I mean, if you moved a thousand dollars from your account on a wire out, they'll ask about that. So I called him. I said, honestly, I feel like the bank is like trying to lose me as a customer. And if you huh. ask me, for, like I'm done. I'm not giving you any more documents. I've given you the same documents now three times. I'm ready to close. You should have been ready to close four months ago. This is ridiculous. So I guess they just don't prioritize refi. Obviously, the business is booming. Yeah. They want to do mortgage originations Fortunes, more yeah. than refi. I get it. Fine. But there is like plenty of room for a company to come in and just kick the shit out of banks. But can you get that size of a, of a refinance on an app so yes. much easier? Yeah. You really think you can? I really do. So why didn't you? I'm not saying I can today. Okay. I don't know that it's that You should simple. be able to. And I don't want to, I've never dealt with this company, so I won't even plug it, but there are companies that do this. I I refied um, in the middle of the, somewhere in the middle of the pandemic, warmer months is what I remember. So it had to have been July or August or September. And I- You and everyone else. Yeah, in the whole world. And I went with guaranteed rate. I've heard of them. I never really, you know, had any experience. It wasn't an app, but their portal and their tech, clearly where they made investment- I, I would have approached it just like you did, extremely cynical, ready to be questioned on every little thing. Business owner, giant pain in the ass. Right. Giant pain in the ass. Show me everything. And it was, with that, having said that, it was actually smooth. To what, my, to my, to my surprise, I had it nicely organized because I knew what was coming my way and we're financial professionals. But even then, it was smoother than when we first well, this bought is, the house. This was like going to proctologist. It's six months and I still have it. I'm still not done. I'd be, I'd be very frustrated. I'd be very frustrated. Do you think that. that they might, well, I guess two things, a lot of different processes for different things have been delayed just due to COVID and people working from right. home. These are like big bank employees that are maybe not necessarily working the hours they should. But do you think that maybe they're making it difficult because they're trying to deter people from doing it? They're, from what I, from what I'm told, they're just insanely backed up. They don't, have to, they don't have the staff for this. I think it's volume related. So I think, I think that's all it is. But nevertheless, just like uh, I'm like, oh, Robin, we, I need your, uh, your uh, paychecks again. She's like, again, I feel yeah. like it's the fourth time. But that's time. the problem, though, that they, they don't have the people for this. It's too much manual, not enough automated. That's yeah. Which well, is what the fintech disruption is about. Like, why are these subjective decisions? But so what they, are they based yeah, on? They keep asking me for the same stuff. I'm like, you have my May statement. I gave it to you last time. Mm-hmm. And if this was, if technology like intervened, they would already know that they already have it. So, Well, that is the frustration with the traditional banking system and why millennials and people in the underbanked and unbanked communities 
don't necessarily, it's more so than convenience and expense and all the minimum balance things that go along with using traditional banks is the distrust of the banking system. So that's why a lot of younger people and yeah, those, you know, the unbanked communities, they would prefer to use something yeah, nobody, like right, Cash App wants or them. Ally yeah. or, you know, they, they want to use something that's young and cool and seems transparent, which we ha- we don't necessarily know yet except for it looks like Chime is going down pretty like hot and heavy right now. But, you know, that's why a lot of people, the these neobanks or challenger banks is appealing to them. So the, nobody wants nobody wants these younger people as customers, um, which is the opportunity for the fintechs. I, like the only people that want them are people that are going to sell them a horrible insurance policy or a horrible credit card. Like they're just not coveted by the old banks. I, so I, that's the, the – I just think they're not motivated to revamp. You know, these are 100-plus-year-old banks, some of them. Technolo- like, how old is the tech? Like, my brother actually does technology for a large financial firm. and Probably 20 years old at least. Oh, I wrote down 40 years yeah. old, 30-year-old technology. It is so hard and so expensive. What they do is they just put Band-Aid on top of mm-hmm. Band-Aid on, you know, mm-hmm. like— Yeah, they don't rip you, anything out. They yeah, their, ex- on top their of exchange it. server links to a Domino server. Remember Lotus, like, one, two, three? I mean, I know I'm young, but I'm old enough to know the, the way it worked. And they just build pipe and connect pipe, pipe, pipe. What are you going to do? Tell a $40 billion company, hey, all of your tech needs to be completely destroyed and built back up. Yeah, go tell that to the shareholders as you go to make a $4 billion investment in tech and lose 20 See, cents per I share. I almost don't think that would cost them. Like if if they wanted to be – PayPal's $300, billion, uh, $300 a share now. Yeah, it's it's bigger than all of these companies. But I feel like that was built in the new the new era, not like the old tech. Yes, era. but they have never been penalized by shareholders for making big investments. It's not a hugely profitable company. Yeah, but you can't compare that to Wells Fargo because the fintechs are, are valued more as tech companies than they are as banks, right? Well, I almost feel like there's room for one of these banks to say we're not focused on profitability over the next five years. We're focused on global domination of- But that's of, what they're unwilling- And that's I kind of feel like that's do. where like Marcus comes into it. Like Goldman's doing something different to try to bring they're that market it. into eventually the wealth transfer, the Marcus clients become the Goldman clients. Yep. And like, that's the smart way to do it from a bank perspective. If Goldman, if Goldman is able to show user growth with Marcus, that's sufficient, sufficiently fast enough user growth, nobody would pay attention to the amount they're investing. Like the story I'm, would just be users. I'm shocked that Marcus is not- increasing their rate a little bit and using that as like a loss leader. Like yeah. Yeah. everyone else is giving you 70 basis points. We'll give you 110, come here and they'll monetize them elsewhere. That's what First Republic Bank does, but on the student loan refinance side, it has been the biggest game changer for my household and my clients, bar none. Loss leader, give you a rate that's stupidly below even the SOFIs and common bonds of the world. You can't compete against them and they're going to cross sell and wallet, you know, and wallet share you real good. And you know what? I, I, I went out to lunch with the VP. I'm like, you're not going to get me, you know. He's like, yeah, of course, you're, you're an advisor. But, you know, you've already referred how many clients to us? Mm. And we love you for it. Mm. And I'm just like, you guys are genius. Are you in their commercials yet? Not yet. Should After be. this show. Uh, yeah. 25% of U.S. households are either <laughs> unbanked or underbanked. Half the nation's unbanked households say they don't have enough money to meet the minimum balance requirements. 34% say bank fees are too high. And if you're trying to get a mortgage, you better hope the house isn't cheap. Meaning like nobody wants these small transactions, small accounts. They're not marketing to try to get them. So if you built an app, that's the that's your audience. And then the idea is you get really good serving that audience and you move upstream, yep. which someone's going to do. 
um, and shock everybody. It's an opportunity. So we we saw Robinhood do that on the brokerage side. Mm-hmm. Someone will do that successfully. So maybe somebody already is. So what well, is going? Cash App. I would say Cash App is the one that's in the it, primarily in that space, and they're helping people do transactions with yes. Bitcoin. Mm. And the king of that is Tyrone Ross. You know. My good friend, our good does he, friend. Wait, does he like... And you guys got to have him on the show because he's like, he's all over this. Dude, Tyrone, Tyrone, come here every day. We'll do the show. We'll flip, <laughs> we'll flip the we'll flip the mics on. He, Is he into Cash App? Yeah, so he... he loves he, it. Yeah, yeah he and so he, he's a big proponent of it because he talks about like the big B versus little B. Little B being the Bitcoin, big B being the blockchain and giving people that are unbanked who don't meet minimum balance requirements and all, you know, don't have it great historical credit line or credit record and all of that. Or no credit record. Yeah. And yeah. and allowing them to be able to transact with family and friends without having to go to check cashing and, and saving all those fees. So I really think, yeah, Cash App is doing a huge service to that we're, community. We're a Venmo household. Yeah. I don't know why. Not a, not a Cash App household. For, uh, same here, but only because I think it was for, I have both apps, but first remember, I paid one person once I think in Cash App. Is Venmo, Verizon, and Cash App is AT&T? I wanted to actually, <laughs> I wanted to try their Zelle, right? Like with, that's what the well, bank's Zelle, version Zelle of Zelle is owned by a consortium of the banks. Mm-hmm. So it was like yeah. their competitive Venmo. Yeah. Nobody's Zelling anybody anything. I, I, I only use Zelle. I Zelle. Really? Yeah. I've used Come it on. twice. Don't ever sell but me. The, but the difference with that, though, is because Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin directly and you can use it for exchange between family and friends. You can't do that on Venmo. And it's a digital, and it's a digital wallet, too. Yeah, Unlike and it's a digital wallet. PayPal it has secure storage. Not. So, I mean, I don't need to go down the crypto rabbit hole right now, but that's where Cash App is, has a huge advantage. Jack for Dorsey. PayPal is now involved in Bitcoin. Yeah, but you don't they get bought it. some for their balance sheet. They're I, letting you do something with it. First thing I did was try and buy cryptocurrency on all the platforms just to see how they were doing it. I thought that could have been a competitive advantage for the companies. PayPal was very easy, but you don't get a digital wallet. You have to transact in their ecosystem. And then you got Jack out there with uh, Cash App. Why you do you want the digital wallet? Why does it matter? Uh, you can't transfer your Bitcoin outside of PayPal. So just to be able to hold Bitcoin in it. Yeah, j- just if you want to hold the asset, okay. which isn't, you know, if you just want no, to do it, it's fine. It's, it's super easy, which Are is Are you paying great. people for things in Bitcoin or not yet? Not yet. Are you? No. Would you accept Bitcoin for services rendered in any way, shape, or form? I have no interest mm, in doing that. Maybe not today. Right. Maybe, yeah. maybe someday. Yeah, someday. I wouldn't give my Bitcoin. Well, that's the other thing. I, I'm long Bitcoin. I'm not trading it. For, why? Why would you do that? Is the you, I, I agree like, with you? You're trading away the fantasy that it's going to go to a million. I need my fantasy. Desperate, well, that's Robin too. Like I, I don't know the difference. The split, like for Robinhood, for example, I don't know what their asset split is between people that are using it for like day to day banking and investing versus crypto. Mm. Do you guys know? What Robinhood? Yeah, what well, yeah, Robinhood split is between like cash transactions and crypto transactions. Oh, I would say that it's crypto trading. Yeah. I don't even think like I, I, I saw the Do- the Dogecoin stat was like eight percent. Did you post that? I forget so. what it was. I think it was a third of their crypto revenue was from Doge, which is holding <laughs> wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's let's uh let's let's keep it moving. We want to talk about Chimer now. Yeah, what the f*** is going on in Chime? What's wrong with these people? <laughs> they sound, they I sound like criminals. You, I get I get probably fifteen different DMs a day on Instagram with really? fake chime, fake chime. In, um, wow. What's it called? Invitations to open an account. So that's when I was reading this, I was thinking a lot of these complaints, I would assume are consumers that oh. open an account through someone else. That's a, a fake chime, not actually chime. Let's let's yeah. And they just haven't made it through all the complaints yet because Vero and chime, I get consistently let's, and the fake Vero and chime are always commenting though. on. So, so here's what's going on. Chime, 
Uh, this is ProPublica. Chime, a neobank serving millions, is racking up complaints from users who can't access their cash. The company says it's cracking down on an extraordinary surge in fraudulent deposits. That's little consolation to customers caught in the fray. So, Liana, that's what you're saying? Yeah. And so I think that, you know, of course, there's probably have been some accounts that have been closed for fraudulent reasons or frozen until Chime can figure out, like, you know, verify the person's identity or whatever's going on the source of source of the assets. But I think a lot of this is probably consumers that have opened up Chime looking like I'll get messages from Chime dot one Chime. Hello. Good morning, Chime. All oh, the and it and shows the Chime logo. In that. Yeah, and so people are sending links to people on Instagram or Twitter, or wherever, inviting them to get three hundred dollars when you open a Chime account today. I get fifty why of them do, a day. Why do they have so many impersonators? I don't know. It's Chime and Vero that I get all the time. It must have something to do with the onboarding process. It being really easy to open a fake account or share an account with yeah. somebody else. But so, all right. So this gets back to this idea that like banks have thousands of employees. They have thousands of employees just working on things like impersonations and fraud and and fraud protection. Chime doesn't have a workforce like mm-hmm. that. So when they have an issue and they need to lock down accounts, they're doing that in an automated way, probably across the board. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to take them a long time to go through, okay, this is real, this is fake, this is so fake. So look at this. You go you go to the web you go to their website. And it says Chime, banking that has your back. LOL. And then on the bottom, That's it a says- a knife in your back. Like literally it says Chime is a financial technology company, not a bank. Mm-hmm. Well, why, what is the appeal of Chime to begin with? No overdraft fees. <laughs> Do I have that right? Yeah. Is, is so, that the whole story? Yeah. I just, I'm on their, sorry, I got caught up on their Instagram page to see if it was any good. Um, Doug, while you're looking for that, listen to this stat. <laughs> of the nine, <laughs> what? Of the nine, were you about to say something? Uh, get paid early, online banking, f- fee-free overdraft, no hidden yeah, fees, pay anyone, one. mobile banking. That's like the, the, the I mean, this sounds grand like, this is the of, definition of, of you are the product, right? Yes. So of the 920 complaints filed about Chime, 197 were tagged as involved in a closed account, meaning they're just they're closing people's accounts, which mm-hmm. ah, doesn't sound great. Um, Wells Fargo, by comparison, now Wells is like the poster child for yeah. bank complaints. Wells has six times as many customers. Uh, they have 317 100. complaints. 317 okay. versus 920 for Chime. What are they doing? Some, something's <laughs> going very wrong. Something is going very wrong there. <laughs> yeah. Um, if that's not a publicly traded company. But I think they were talking to a SPAC or- Well, they were the biggest, before Robin, outside of Robin, they're the biggest uh, non-public fintech company. I mean, but they were probably on the runway to come public. I'm they, sure they, they still they, are. They, they probably still are. What's the difference if they pay a $40 million fine? Yeah, what's the, if you're going to come public worth $20 billion out of the shoot, who cares? Yeah, I think that last, last they were at 15. So Yo, I almost feel like that's a rite of passage for a fintech coming public. It's like, how horrendous was your scandal? Yeah. And did and, you survive it? And no publicity is bad publicity. Well, like Robinhood, when they shut down trading and stuff with the meme stocks, like every, people lost their shit over that. They had a, They had five days worth of market cycle Wall yeah. to wall talking gained, about Robinhood gained six million, you know, customers during that time. Did they well, really? Yeah. While well, everyone, while well, everyone thought, you know, everyone's up in arms, they probably brought in more clientele than. I, I, I probably said before. something smartassy like, "If uh, I don't tweet anymore, I tweeted this in my head. If Robinhood were public, like, how much would it be down? Yeah. You've been dead wrong. The trade is buy." Last thing I'll say is I watch this really weird TV channel called The Wealth of Entertainment. It's like dream cruises and five-star vacations. I fall asleep to this stuff every night. Every commercial is a fintech, back-to-back fintech commercial, including Dave, including Chime, um, one after another. So it's kind of weird that we're talking. I mean, it's just that 
And the way they advertise their product is definitely downstream. Like I got my paycheck early so, you know, I could buy yeah, yeah, X, yeah. Y, Z. And it wasn't even like buy food. It was like, so my kid could get candy. I was like, there are too many, by the what? way, there are, there are too many of these and they're all raising boatloads of money. Yes. They're going to rip each other to shreds. $30 billion, that latest funding. So, I yeah. have no idea what the differentiator is when I watch like three of these commercials back to back. It's the same thing. Can I sum can I sum things up on fintech as basically saying the only thing that matters in the end is cost to acquire a customer, and Probably. the more mon- the more war chests that these companies amass through like SPACs or IPOs, the more expensive it's going to be to acquire a customer. And these are customers who are basically paying you nothing. So I hope you're able to exploit these people. Well, there's 70 trillion of wealth transfer in the pipeline. So that's what they're all targeting right. eventually. The that's, millennials, That's right? exactly right. Um, all right, Mike, what, what what's going on with this? Debt payments collapsing as a percentage of earnings. Uh, it sounds like it's good news. It is good news. Okay. So Robert Burgess tweeted. We have this chart. The percentage of earnings that U.S. households are spending on debt payments has collapsed. Now this these de- percentage terms right here. These debt payments are yep. These debt payments are obviously first and foremost your house, mm-hmm. your car, your student loans, whatever other loans you're taking out. Um, and this is this is good news. There's more money for the economy. So the money that people are not spending on debt service, they are able to give to Netflix. Right? Amongst other or, streaming or services, Paramount Plus. They're able <laughs> they're able to buy cars. They're able to I'm reading this as a reduction in debt service. Yeah, it's a good thing. Well, this is 13%. So households- Pre-crisis, pre-crisis. Pre-crisis, households were spending 13% of their income, percentage of their income, to pay either pay off debt or make the interest payments on debt. Is and that now because, that's down to 8%. Is that because they now have less debt that they need to service? Or they're just, they're just No, they got cash. Less. They got cash to to knock out some of these debts. They don't even exist anymore. Yeah, like that, that's what I equated this to is that they they have less credit card debt and they've paid it off. That's a part of it. The also credit card rates wait, didn't fall. What if what if they don't and they're just spending more money? What am I am I getting something fundamentally wrong? I here? think they're gonna start doing that and then this is gonna flip. Well, it's right? also it's also mortgage rates. The average mortgage rate is three and a quarter percent. Fair on all outstanding. Okay. What, is it, it, what is, is it down from bag? I mean four. What was the mortgage well, rate whatever in 2019? It is, Four and a half? What was that, a good that, rate? That's a significant savings. Significant. So on a, on a $100,000 uh, mortgage loan coming down a point and a half, how much are you saving per month if you're that household that was able to refinance? I guess a, a decent amount. A lot. Okay. I, I'm reading too far into it, but that little kick up there before that big drop, I would imagine, you know, that's COVID right there, right? Uh, that'll Boom, yeah. dip, right? So it picked up because people were taking money they were getting and throwing it at their debt. All right, meanwhile, stop nitpicking charts. Meanwhile, Fine. Doug. <laughs> uh, Twice. Palm, <laughs> Palm Beach is running out of mansions for sale. I bought them all. There you go. Yo, the headline for this is dangerous mansion shortage threatens America. That's amazing. <laughs> what will the millionaires and billionaires Wait, why do? Why is there a shortage of mansions in Palm Beach? Because there's only so many. These, there's people, only, won't, there's these tw- people won't die on time. There's They're only, tw- there's so only 25 for sale. Black, BlackRock bought them all at a 20% premium. That's why. The average price is $11.7 billion. Crisis. $11.7 million. That's insane. Insanity. Price per square foot in Palm Beach is the same as, as Manhattan. I found that was the only part of all this that I found shocking. Was it's Which almost what? the that? square foot per, 
per square foot price is almost comparable to Manhattan. Now. I mean, that's fifteen hundred to fifteen forty five. That I was pretty shocked. Uh, yeah. So like, so like what's shit. Palm Beach like? Who lives there? <laughs> Um, Melvin Capital. That's who lives there. And Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, Steve Cohen. I've only been there like to go out to dinner. Star, or I mean, Star I've Island. Any time there. I mean, we got a lot of retirees. Here's what I think. To your point earlier about interest rates going down. I mean, it. It kind. You know, if you if you're flooded with money, if you're just crazy rich, you know, you go scoop up real estate here and leverage it for free, right? So I guess like, do you think the person that buys an 11.7 million dollar Palm Beach home was waiting for interest rates to fall? Yes. You really do? No, I just felt that they viewed it as an opportunity <laughs> to up. They viewed it as an opportunity to go buy it or upgrade it or here's, 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 do do something they with their it up capital. From the Eight million dollar house. No, I just think they're rich. They're that much more wealthy coming out of the pandemic now. Here's an interesting. They create, we, they, how much money? So did they my make? opinion is this has nothing to do with mortgage rates. This no, is, this is stock market wealth. Correct. Or people that own other properties. Well, the appreciation support, on support, that to support what, Josh's view, I think thirty percent of all houses were bought with cash of uh, the mansions you're talking no, about no oh, just in just general outright. i don't know if this was the last month or two months ago but 30 percent. Right. if you had a hundred million dollars invested someone who would be buying an 11 million dollar home you have 189 million dollars at the end of yeah, you have right you have a hundred million dollars in stocks go buy your second and mansion you're, and you're taking loans against that from right. morgan stanley jp yeah. morgan whatever and that's what you're buying it with you're not waiting for a 30-year no, of course jumbo, not. Jumbo, jumbo, jumbo mortgage to tick down in, in price. No, that was so. that was silly of me. The <laughs> the, the portfolio it's silly going in a good way. Home. Yeah, come on, dude. Uh, I, I walk back things I say all the time. Well, they're probably even getting a better rate on you know a collateralized loan against their portfolio than you know even a mortgage. Rate. They're getting free money from the. So bank. the numbers across the U.S. cash purchases were thirty percent of home sales over the same. So. Highest since 2015. All right. Scott Schleifer, a partner at Tiger Global Management, bought a $122.7 million mansion in Palm Beach mm. in February, marking the highest price ever paid for a property in there. What do you do with that? He, he paid for it with Chime stock. Do you do you buy that <laughs> thinking you're going to sell it for $180 million in five years? They what are you literally doing? No, you buy it probably thinking you're, you're living for free. You're no, gonna, but seriously, $122 million. No, what seriously, are you doing? you're going to live there, and then you're going to sell it. You might make money. You're not going to lose money. You're buying to sell What are your taxes on that property? $5 million a year? What is the, <laughs> I would like to know what, what property What is the cost of upkeep? Like, all kidding aside, do you make a bill? You have to make- What's that address? <laughs> I, I'll they, zillow it. They didn't, they didn't print the address. How much does it cost to staff? Like, just take a guess. That thing, that thing's bigger than the breakers, is what that is. Like what? What would you? What would you guess? The staff alone, a million. A million dollars right? a year. If you have, staff if you have, if you have a, a staff of cleaning people come, that's like ninety grand a pop. I honestly think that a lot of well, with specific to Palm Beach and anywhere else in Florida, I think it's an acceleration of baby boomer retirement out of higher tax states, and to them, the comparison that they're saving in taxes of not living in New York or California anymore. Why would you even care how much you're? What, That's a huge your part mansion of it. costs per year in maintenance, you're saving X times more than that in your taxes you're not paying anymore. You're not paying New York state tax. You're not paying uh, New York city tax. Um, if you moved your whole firm out of there, like a lot of hedge funds did, you have significant savings. Yeah, like, so you're not going to care about the garden. But anyway, this staff, mansion right? shortage, this mansion shortage, it can't continue. Yeah. <laughs> we got we got to build more mansions. This is completely unsustainable. I Where's totally my agree. mansion? In it, I've never even been to it's Palm Beach. It's no, North Ocean Boulevard is billionaires row. But it's old too, right? Outside it, of the billionaires, it's an old No young cats are like, you know. Nobody's partying. Nobody's there. partying there. That Liana, that's why you haven't been there. I know. I I was actually I was looking at places there last year, but then everyone said you're going to be like 
30 years younger than everyone. <laughs> and you're going to be single forever. They're going to think you're the babysitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is 72-year-olds with their Robert Graham shirt, so they just copped at Nordstrom. What The Robert L- Graham L- shirt is the one with the cuff that turns up and it's a different pattern? I had one. Yeah, they're awesome. Those oh, are super that's cute. that's nice. Um, that's, I see a lot of that when I go out to dinner. That's a big, like, 50-something-year-old. That's got to be big in Long Island, too, in, in that but crowd. But it's like a generation older than me. Yes, correct. What They're is like, you know when you turn the cuff oh, up, it's, and it's uh, like, let's say the shirt is striped. It's like polka dots underneath yeah, the cuff. Yeah, see, so it's got, like, another Oh, oh look see? at that. Uh-huh. He but has crowns. Not, but that's not Robert Graham, and is skulls. it? No. Oh. Okay. You, that was custom made for you. Correct. This is very wow. judgmental to me, but I, I, that's a, to me, that's such a turnoff. What? Not that I'm, like, looking for men, <laughs> but, like... Yeah. Oh no, I'm done with a guy. When I, I say like it, Doug. I like it. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. You look handsome. Appreciate it. Yeah. You see what's on the inside of this t-shirt? <laughs> Sweat stains. <laughs> Your deodorant. Uh. All right. Uh. Vanguard's getting into direct indexing. We don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but uh, I want to take a little bit of a victory lap. It basically said in December that this was going to be the biggest trend in investing in 2021. I don't think it really is yet. But it might become. I might end up being. I'm. I'm saying I'm right already. <laughs> but Van, like Vanguard doesn't do stuff like this. First corporate acquisition. They've never. They've never bought anybody. Right. That, that's. That's true. Yes. Yeah. It's at. It's. It's kind of at ends with like their their culture and, and philosophy. The whole. The whole thing, not just acquisition, right, but so like let, getting into. Direct let's indexing. let's explain to people that aren't aware of what's going on here. Vanguard has seven and a half trillion dollars under management, probably half of which is index mutual funds and or low-cost active mutual funds, and then the other half is ETFs. And for a couple of years now, it's been apparent to a lot of us that there's going to be a next thing that displaces a lot of ETF business. Not kills the ETF, but like what's the next, next, next thing? And custom indexing seems like it's going to be it. And Vanguard just bought this company called Just Invest. Uh, Good name. They are a provider of tax-managed, that's the key phrase, by the way, tailored wealth management technology, including Kaleidoscope. Not a good name. A highly customizable direct indexing offer. So this is like instead of buying an index ETF, you can just have all the individual stocks in your account, but it's done algorithmically, and there's constant tax loss harvesting taking place throughout the course of the year. Mm-hmm. Daily, it says on the Daily. website. And – we, I mean, we're proponents of it. We don't work with Vanguard, but we work with um, O'Shaughnessy. Yeah. And their product's called Canvas, which is a way cooler name than Kaleidoscope. <laughs> Real cool stuff. Uh, but we think it is the future. It doesn't make sense for every single investor. I think it's like a size thing. I don't think you want to do this with $50,000. I mean, if you have like – like that tax thing obviously applies to folks with concentrated low basis positions and really want something – You know, I mean, that's amazing. But Oh, who, yeah. Who, it goes who, way beyond taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, but, you know, who does that – it's not the every retail investor. No, but so from, from our perspective, if we're talking to a prospective investor who's like $8 million net worth and $5 million is in Facebook stock, yeah. I can't buy this guy the cues. Nope. I'm just giving him more Facebook, mm-hmm. more – so the ability to build an index portfolio but leave that out, yeah. there aren't great solutions for that kind of concentration away from this. Correct. So that is that is where I feel like the application to this is huge. I don't know that that's the typical Vanguard client, which me, leads me to believe that they want to use this for advisors. advisors. 
That's that's what I was curious about as well, is that they're not really the institutional ultra high net worth no. advisory firm to go to for direct indexing. But that's, I mean, it makes sense that they're building out this suite. Well, the product itself here says it already has branded solutions. You can just go white label it. So you're onto something there because yeah. they're, they're already built to do just that. When does Schwab turn theirs on? As soon as... Uh, the week before this launches. <laughs> well, so now, so now here's the thing, though. This probably didn't cost them much. We don't know what they paid for just invest, but I think they have 20 employees. How much could they have bought this company for? It's like how much? Van- how much in assets? We're talking about Vanguard. Have- they could do one of these a day if they wanted to. Yeah. Um, here's here's one a billion, thing. A billion dollars in assets in this thing. They I did. believe. Then penny pennies and drops in their yeah. pocket. Here's one assets thing I want to say about billion. this: if they are going to position this as a tool for advisors, we have found. That's setting up high net worth client accounts, working with O'Shaughnessy mm-hmm. on Canvas. We have found that that is a very front end loaded proposition. There is so much care and work that has to be done on the front end. Vanguard can't staff this with 20 people and expect like to be able to onboard any advisor clients because I know how much time my traders yeah. are spending on the phone setting these accounts up and checking and double checking. If you screw something up on the front end with an algorithmically driven portfolio that's buying and selling 500 stocks. Yeah, good luck unwinding it. Like it's a real problem. So this is not like let's throw an ETF in somebody's account, which is Vanguard's bread and butter. So I just – I hope they're planning to staff up. I'm telling – I – Hi, Vanguard. I'm ta- <laughs> I hope you sponsor my show one day. I'm telling you from experience, you're going to need very, very capable people on the phone. What if What if they're just putting it in, you know, their their tool belt here? If the next generation, you know, index investor is going to be calling on these types of things and just to be, you know, they can, they can grab it out of the toolbox and be like, all right, we really do need to build this out because from a wealth transfer, the millennials, the, the Zoomers who are going to be their customer, their average customer in the next 20 years, they need this. That would make sense if they were doing these sort of things, but they've never done this before. So I don't think they're just going to buy it and see how it goes. Like I think they're, they're going to put resources behind this. Do you think the average person even knows what this is? I, I have been hearing about direct indexing and building direct indexes for family office clients and like ultra high net worth and institutions for the last few years. Yeah, but you're but, savvy. I'm saying, yeah, we're like, not, do you we're think a retail normal. Vanguard investor no, but would that's, even know what but this that's is? No, but that's where I also think, I mean, they even say in this for high net worth and institutional clients, I was going to ask you guys if you had heard more about this and what the minimum level of assets it would be appropriate for an investor to have option to direct what index. We, what's our, what? Because, yeah, it's a lot of setup. It's not, you know, an easy thing to put What's into. What's the smallest account what do you that think? we would do a direct index with? A quarter million. Quarter million. Like, we wouldn't we wouldn't do a $100,000 direct index. Oh, I thought portfolio. it would have been, like, yeah. $5 million. But But with fractional shares, why not? I, no, I, I know you can do it. The question is, is it worth the effort and the complexity? No, I don't mean that. If the tax not, savings no, aren't no, that no, great no, no, and there's no, no, no concentration. I, I, don't, I don't think it's the answer for everyone. I, I think it's derived by the what kind of value can it provide that particular client, right. and I think there is a minimum asset in there. I think this Quarter is driven on on ESG impact investing, Big time yep. families and high net worth investors that want to customize, like you know they use the term value based investing tool. That that's where I think this comes into play. Right. So rather than trying to find, let's Liana, let's say you're my client and you're like, look, I'm very specific about what I care about. I don't want to own any companies that have. Um, no women on the board, which in the S&P 500, I don't even think that exists anymore. But let's just say, or you were like, I don't want any nuclear or whatever your, like, whatever your thing was, rather than me trying to find a mutual fund manager who has that portfolio, 
that's as specific as you want, this is a tool that I could use to do that. I can literally screen those things out um, on on Canvas and give you that portfolio. And oh, by the way, as an added benefit, with mutual funds, you usually get a hit with taxes. Right. I'm actually going to make your tax situation better because I'm going to be harvesting all year. I Every day I'm harvesting. I don't think this is a threat to the <laughs> ETF. Dude, that would be a sick show. I'm going to make that t-shirt for the show. Every day I'm tax loss harvesting. Super or nerdy. Super super uh, weak. Atlanta's right. Number one, right on the site. Granular ESG oh, for all that. your clients. I, uh, I think there's going to be a pretty high minimum AUM to get this product from 31 me. flavors of ESG. <laughs> so, so I, I think pick up the is... phone with a client like, all right, what's your problem? I'm vegan. I'm Guns? E- all right, no problem. I got you. <laughs> I think this is more of a threat to the ESG mutual fund ETFs of the world than like, I don't think that direct indexing is going to take a, a meaningful piece from ETFs and mm-hmm. mutual funds. Five, 5% would still be a ton of money, mm-hmm. but I think that this definitely should be uh like the Black Rocks of the world should view this as a threat to their ETFs. If you owned a conference called Inside ETFs, which somebody does own, would you be rethinking the name of that given that this looks like it's going to be the next hot thing in wealth management? I kind of would be. Well, I think they're different audiences though too. The ESG and impact ETFs are for every retail investor and your mother, brother, cousin. But this is not for that. This is specifically for high net worth. That's what I think because there's so much customization involved, it's going to be – or another level. I agree. And by the way, I don't think a solo advisor can do this because of how hard you have to work on the setup. I'll, I'll be honest. I've been, I've been, ju- I've been building out an alt platform. You train, for the what's lo- this kid? What's his name? Cliff. You got to train Cliff to like yeah, do this stuff with you. I, and I think I, I think we could get there, but if just building out um, a multi, are you jealous that he's more handsome than you? Yes. Okay. He's not allowed to do face to face with clients. He'll be off social media for a long time. Okay, good. All right, <laughs> go on. I spent a year building out a multi-custodial platform to plug in a canvas or whatever direct indexing platform. And you're not wrong. I mean, just me alone doing that That's and having to call work. compliance. It took a year. It took a year. Yeah. It took a year just to have Schwab and Fidelity and a rap brochure together and trained up to now go approach uh, a product provider and be like, we're ready. And what am I like with what money? It's one of the biggest, it's one of the biggest bottlenecks in our account opening process. Like, Going from onboarding, like the, the yeah. first day you start onboarding a client to when that account is actually funded, asset allocated, traded, whatever. It's early days. This is this is one of the big bottlenecks, and it's not anyone's fault. Right. It's inherent. This is the nature. This is what makes it very different from an ETF. ETF is very easy. Yeah. Uh, et- okay. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep going. So uh, no more crypto influencers on TikTok. All right. So I have some time freed up now. <laughs> Because <laughs> that was my plan for August. I was going to sell a shit ton of uh, You're gonna shill coins, some safe moon, De- DeFi coins on something TikTok. you've never heard of. Uh, do you do do you do crypto stuff at all? I, I haven't seen you I do get, it. Uh, reporters call me and ask about crypto. I just never really thought that I was an expert in that, but apparently I am. You, an- you should answer their questions anyway. <laughs> I do definitely. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, <laughs> do you come across do you come across stuff on TikTok or Instagram that's like? heavily promotional of crypto. I feel like I don't see it that often. I, I don't do um, TikTok. It's just too, it's just another platform. It's too much for me. But okay. um, you're missing a lot of my dance moves. Well, I guess I got to get back on there. Um, there. I mean, there's a lot of crypto content on Instagram for sure. And even more so junk and scams. Um, okay. It's Looks- like the, it's like the new FX for millennials. How will TikTok 
how will TikTok's algorithm know whether something is promoting or just um, talking about? They so what they did is they banned paid promotional. Um, crypto stuff. You can't do a commercial on Correct. your TikTok page. All that cringy stuff of some, you, you know, use, you know, Pump God eighty nine. You know, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop, stop talking about Ben Carlson like that. Yeah, Ben Ben on there. You know, pumping horse coin. You know, he. <laughs> You, you can do that all you want and mislead investors and, you know, point to three ticker symbols and specs and tell them it's going to go to the Look how easy moon. it is to buy a uh, safe Oh, moon. I hate it so right. much. But you can still do that. What you can't do is set up an advertisement campaign or a promotional oh, campaign. So people are still going to pump this shit then. All day long. All day long. All right. But it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, I think the Chinese government, which now bans cryptocurrency, <laughs> loves the fact that TikTok is – Helping Americans blow themselves up in, with crypto. In crypto my favorite, my favorite account on TikTok is Vanguard. They're hilarious. <laughs> yeah, they're they're, kill, they're killing it. Um, I saw Tim Buckley doing the Dougie the other day. It was pretty, it was my pretty impressive. Goodness. All right, uh, Delta variant. Does anyone give a fuck anymore? I'm done. Uh, but it appears as though we're yawning our way through it. We're all four feet apart, spitting in each other's faces right now. I'm not going to. Well, because we're vaccinated. Is that it? Is, is as simple as that. We're vaccinated, so. So I actually did a poll on this on my Instagram oh. yesterday in preparation for today's show because I actually, I'm a little bit concerned about it, not from a person-to-person death perspective, but from an economic perspective, I am starting to see a few things where um, like shows are being shut down, sets, like people I know that work in the entertainment industry, our projects are They're being postponed back. again. Yeah. Um, and that's, I actually just had another one of my followers on Instagram message me about that today saying like he's freelancer in the industry and media and two of his fall projects already got pushed back to 2022, Ugh. which doesn't make me feel good. Um, so more from an economic travel, borders opening up. My whole family's in Canada. They just opened the border for vaccinated people with a Canadian passport. Americans. And, yeah. No, oh, Cana- no. only Canadians, Canadians that are outside. America. Yes. They still so don't want I don't, us. <laughs> nope. They don't want you guys for a while. So, <laughs> we pissed so I don't want that stuff to, you know, I don't want the shutdowns to happen again. The, the results of the poll so far are, and this is, you know, hundreds, not thousands of investors or people on Instagram. 44% say they are worried. 56% say they're not worried. Okay. Worried what about how this might impact Worried the about the Delta variant, about how it's Im- going to impact life overall. Not this not article personally. is specific to U.S. equity markets. That I'm not really worried about. But overall, I am concerned about shutdowns and travel. Hit that out of the park. I'm thoroughly annoyed that it's an opportunity to go through the the psychops and, and, and all. It's just going to be a headache. In Annoying. every part of your yeah. life, and there there are real health. Like I feel for immunocompromised. Dude, we went mm-hmm. we went from oh my god, I'm gonna die to oh this is so annoying. It only it only took us it only took us a year and a it's half. A pri- it's impressive. It's, it's a privilege take to say that as vaccinated people who are healthy and can feel pretty good about it. But if you're immunocompromised, I read an article that like if you have AIDS, like COVID, hands down the absolutely right. makes sense. So Imagine right. the frustration of healthcare workers. Yeah. Yeah, because they have another wave of this right. shit now. We're like, this again, didn't we just do this? Especially it, if they live in a place with a low vaccination. That's where the states right rate. now, like those those hospitals are full again. So my wife yes. watches Good Morning America like a psycho. And every morning they talk about the Delta variant. And it's all- I mean like a psycho. I was going to say, she's going like to love that, that line. Who watches <laughs> Loveliest? Good morning. Honestly, 
Don't tell me about psychos. She's the loveliest person <laughs> oh. I know. I'm sorry on his behalf. Robin. I'm not calm. I mean, watching Good Morning America is sociopathic Duncan, behavior. Do not edit that out. Do you hear me? I, I, I'll back you up on <laughs> Thank that. You. I'll, I'll back you up on watching GMA is nutty. Yeah, who yeah does I that? can't do it. Um, but anywho, but but the point is that all of the people that are getting the Delta variant, like primarily, are not vaccinated. Yes. All right. Yeah. This is Michael uh, Sembolist. Not you- all of them, though. Actually, the reason why I did this poll was, I don't know, you guys probably know who this is, but Kat Sadler, she's one of the big e-network hosts. And she did this post that was like reposted all over the place on Instagram yesterday, lying in bed, like sick as a dog for five days, vaccinated with the Delta. I know three people that are J and they were all J and J vaccinated got Delta in the way last lower, month. Way lower. Um, not in New York. Rate. They're in Southern states, but I do know a lot of- I did hear from somebody- Quite a few vaccinated people have got I them. heard from somebody today who was double vaccinated and got COVID. Yeah. Dude, I can't go back through this again. All right, this is yeah. uh, this is Michael Sembolist. One important chart to watch is the first one from the UK. So far, a large spike in Delta infections has not led to a surge in overall hospita- uh, hospitalization or mortality. However- this masks what's happening to unvaccinated people over 50 in the UK. 14% of such uh, Delta infections end up in the hospital. Almost 4% died. Figures which are 4x higher than for vaccinated people over 50. So in the UK, 90% of their over 50-year-olds are vaccinated. Can that possibly be true? 90% you 96% said? they said. Wow. Reducing the size of its at-risk unvaccinated population. However, in the U.S., Vaccinations are 75% nationwide for people over 50. So we're trailing the UK. Most of this is in rural counties where Sean Hannity told them, don't worry about it. Or Ingraham said some stupid shit and they believe it. Congratulations. We reached a point in society where like, you know, when when they had the polio vaccine, like everyone ran to it. Like, good, I don't need to die of polio. And and here we are in 2021. Well, we politicized this, but I, I don't know. I just I feel like if we're going to take a big step back this fall because of a huge unvaccinated population, it's not fair to the people who are young and trying to live their lives and did get vaccinated and did spend a year distanced from people, not seeing their loved ones, not like we did. We paid our dues. It would be very up if we all have to go back to kids being homeschooled. Well, that's it. I view it through like. Selfishly, a young kid lens. We just got like word that, that yeah, yeah. Uh, we just got word that the town next to ours uh, for elementary, yeah, for elementary school, their whole school system, go back. No, no, no protocol. Yeah, no protocol. Go, go to school. That's it. And I can just see it now. I could see this thing getting to a point. It's like, well, Delta's here. You know, kids are going, and they're fucking again. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. You have a take you have a take on this? Well, that I was actually You've been surprised. banned from your home country for, for <laughs> I know. do you want to go through this well, again? Well, that's that's I mean, from a personal perspective, I haven't seen my family in over 2 years. Sick. So, Sick. if that yeah. border closes again, it's, I'm not going to be happy you, about it. I can get you over the border. Okay. But you got to pay. Well, we can talk about that later. I also am going to Paris and Monaco for my birthday in August to September. That better not get canceled either because I'll be real mad. Well, are they freaking out in in France? Not yet, but, you know, I could just – I can see there's, like, a pattern already, and I I just don't like it, but I don't know how we're going to stop it unless more people start getting vaccinated. Well, I think in Europe they are, but they don't have as good vaccines as we have. But they're not going to like the way America looks potentially, right? So we have the best vaccines – and the population least likely to want to get them. And in, in Europe, they have that AstraZeneca piece yeah. of shit. And they they're the like Bronx almost cut. all vaccinated. All right. It's a disaster. But I hope 
I hope we're wrong about this thing making a, a big comeback. Yeah. Me too. And uh, all right, I don't want to spend any more time on this. It's so depressing. We're into um, we're into soapbox. So speaking of, I guess, the pandemic for the last time, I want to just pay homage to the worst call I've ever seen. And this comes from somebody who has three of the top 10 worst calls of all time. <laughs> this is uh, James Altucher. So you guys are probably familiar. You guys listening are probably familiar with something James has said or written. James, I'm, st- I- I'm still not contributing to my 401k based on his advice. So, right, James became famous for saying things like, don't ever buy a house, don't invest in stocks. He did a really big push, don't invest in a 401k. Love it. Like some of the worst pieces of advice, um, just like speaking like very objectively because it's not personal to James. He's anti-oxygen. He likes don't to- Don't breathe. He likes to say the exact <laughs> opposite of what everyone else says. Yeah, contrary. Provoke a huge reaction- and then and monetize by it, selling people all And then bury a ticker symbol into his uh, thing. Dude, I remember I remember when you were talking about that on, on a previous uh, All right, so podcast. Jerry Seinfeld ripped him for this. So it doesn't I'm not going to do it again, but August uh when was this? August 17th, 2020, op-ed in the New York Post for God's sake, New York City is dead forever. And he definitely got the reaction that he wanted. This is one of the biggest trolls I've ever seen. Um <laughs> But uh, it's basically, I love New York, but it's never going to come back. Okay, so here's what's going on. Fast forward. We actually have a shortage of rentals <laughs> in Manhattan. <laughs> it's about 11 months after he wrote this post. Uh, but let me share this with you. Lease signings in New York City apartments hit record highs in June, leaving far fewer available than is customary at this time of year. With vaccinations underway, leasing activity has continued to rise. Inventory can't keep up. For the third month in a row, Manhattan broke records with 9,600 new leases signed in June, the most since Miller Samuel began tracking in 2008. That escalated quickly. Uh, you're a renter in New it's York. It's crazy out there. What's going on? So. You had the, to move, right? The news on the street. <laughs> yeah. I didn't move during COVID. I definitely, definitely negotiated my rent down. But the word on the street is that the West Village is full of early 20-year-olds and it's frat house and Everybody my age in their 30s and 40s is moving uptown because okay. the streets. You can't, and it, you can't live like that. It's crazy. But they all, you know, kudos to them. They all moved into the city when it was half the price, 40% less, 30% less. These they're are all kids getting out, deals. Of co- out of college. Yeah. If they're going to be stuck somewhere, they might as well be stuck in an apartment out in, on in the sidewalks on a patio or something. So they all did it in spring and early this year. But my friends that are now moving back um, in the last month or so, yeah, no deals they're anymore. In, and they're and they're in shock at what what's happening with some of these neighborhoods. Yeah, like, yeah, like really, it, it's funny. You walk down downtown on the weekend, and it is like a street frat party. So what happened to to your building? They're throwing up everywhere. Well, Smoking I live in the Central Park South, no. so I was already with the elderly. Okay, so. all right. So you got out. So you got out. I'm you got out before soul. it was cool. Yeah. Okay. Know. Good for you. I like that neighborhood, uh, Central Park South. Dog mom, you know. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, all right. The Met Metropolitan Museum, ten thousand visitors a day. Um, in the last month, I've been to a sold out concert at MSG, a Knicks playoff game at MSG, also sold out. Uh, and what else did I do recently that I don't think you were able to do? I don't I, I keep I, I keep seeing signs that the city has come back. I know we're not a hundred percent, but is this the worst call you've ever seen? Pretty much invalidated within a year? I don't know. What do you think? 
For, I I reposted it when you posted it. I love it. We we were like we were like this is real. You don't post that much on Instagram, but I saw that one and this yeah. is yeah. Oh, yeah, you curse on here. I was gonna say this is bullshit, but maybe it's total bullshit. Jerry took care of it. <laughs> What's that? Jerry Seinfeld answered. Yeah, can answer, we pull answer, up his answered, response? Answered, I would like to see that. He was basically like, "The world is tough enough without some asshole on LinkedIn yeah. <laughs> shedding tears for LinkedIn. something that's going to be totally fine." I, I had not written in a, in a long time. That was one of the few blog posts I actually wrote during the pandemic. It was like NYC made. I'm just like, this is absolute crap. Um, I came up here in debt, and you know, people people like say, "Oh, you, you did what your dad did." Yeah, I came up here. I sold my car, shipped four boxes, bought a $600 mattress at Sleepy, found a random Craigslist roommate, moved to Murray Hill. Only in New York, kids. October 2008, Lehman collapsed the day I got off the airplane. Come on, man. New York City. New York City ain't dead. It it has bounced back faster than I actually thought that it was going to. In the middle of COVID, I was thinking like three years or something. From the the ashes, the phoenix rises. But not just bounced back. When you tell me that the village is filled with 20-year-olds again, it hasn't been like that in 20 years. But that actually is what the city needed. Yeah. It needed a lot of the old blood to go to Florida already and young people be able to afford to be here. If Rio ain't packed on a Thursday, Rio, you know, <laughs> in Murray Hill, you know, then we got problems. I was a, I was a Joshua Tree guy okay. back in the day. So I had my own table there. Uh, Doug, Soapbox, what do you got? I have the whole billionaires going to space thing here. What, you like it or you don't like it? I'm kind of annoyed by it now. You don't want to hear about it anymore? No. Same. I don't. Let me know when I can like literally go to space. And there's something about like all the billionaires, all the billionaires, there's something about billionaires all wanting to get off this planet. It's like two or three of them though. I know. That's all of them. (laughs) All the ones you need to know about. It's like, why is everyone trying to dip? There was this one, uh, this one meme or tweet or picture. It was newscast is like the fight for billionaires to go to space. And in the Chiron below. Do you think that you just get to a, Get to a point where you have so much money that there's nothing else left yeah, on this world. But to, to do. leave the world. Like what else would you do? Good you, have point. A prob- you have a problem with this? There's or? a lot of billionaires that aren't going to space. Well, that's what I all, said. Michael, you're misinformed. They all want to go to space. But it said, like, billionaires are fighting to go to space. Like poverty has, you know, hit all time high in America. It's like, oh, look at this mess. I'd be disconnect. more impressed if they were like spending this kind of money on trying to figure out how to live to 150. How about this? I so and don't genetics care. Genetics and bio stuff. Let's yeah. let's 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 like switch topics. Who cares? <laughs> I'm done. Right? All right, Liana, what do you got? I want to talk about being single and fabulous, which you are because I guilty. Am. <laughs> yeah, we all we I all am, agree. As well as 47 percent of other adults in America, more single people now than there has ever been before. Which do you I don't even acknowledge your existence. Like the 47 percent of the country. This is, is what I'm saying. I know people don't talk about single finances when more people are divorced, especially in our industry. Widowed, You're widowers. So right. You're so right. Late millennials just living it up. Um, so what is the price of freedom? There definitely is a price for it. Um, we Obviously, we can't file joint taxes. We tech, will usually earn less money than married counterparts living in one household, um, living paycheck to paycheck. We're more likely to do that, investing less and unable to buy homes because we can't get approved for the mortgage in this New York sing- or this wherever. Is, all right. There's a single person tax. Because a lot of the tax, yeah, a lot of the a lot rules of money have been single. written to encourage families. Yeah. Like everything from mortgage uh, deductions. Like it, the list is like very long. So being yeah. single is a luxury that like most people can't it's, afford. It's the cost of freedom. Yeah. But so anyway, there is an article here from um, The Simple Dollar, 13 Ways to Beat the Single Person Penalty. Maybe we can put that in the show notes for the 47% 
112 million unmarried Americans what's over the, the age of 18. What's the best? Yeah, what's what's the, best? the best thing in here? Honestly, a lot of it is kind of planning. There's no real tips and tricks, but you know, really taking advantage of like tax deferred investing accounts and you know being on top of your budgeting and spending and consider you can, a side hustle it's bad advice well consider i mean, <laughs> taking your career to the next level wait number three get married here's what? the thing if you are yeah <laughs> listen listen this stop is being, not <laughs> number one stop being single yeah this is not for lack get of trying together. okay we try we try but you know you just have to be on top of your game even more if you want to have the luxuries like owning a home or doing a lot of the things that married couples do Liana, they're trolling you. This is so fucked up. Number nine, learn to cook. <laughs> learn to cook. So brutal. Messed up. Of which I do. Learn to, learn to make coffee. Get a roommate. No, thank you. I mean, you. this, you know, I was also just going to be sort of promoting myself on the show as a single and fabulous woman. But I'm I'm kidding. Consider yourself. Trying to help the singles out there. Consider yourself promoted. No, I think it's a really good point. Um, there, so much financial uh, content or wealth management content is literally geared toward a uh, nuclear family, it's like family husband, planning. wife, two kids, dog. Yeah. That yeah. is who almost everybody thinks they're talking to. Half the country is not that. It's a re I think that's a really good point. You know how many guys I know in their 40s, in their late 30s in New York City, they're single and never been married with wealth that could God, be managed. They must be, so, they must be so toxic. Some Someone's got to write a blog for them. Yes. All right. Um, <laughs> do, you have, do, you, do you have a- Not me, but- Do you have a uh, soapbox this week? I do, but let's skip it. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Yay. I was looking forward to it, too. I wasn't. Uh, all right, favorites. I'm going to do this really quickly. Uh, the Odd Lots podcast episode from this past week on the labor market was awesome. And I love Joe and Tracy, and I listen to pretty much all of their podcasts. And this one, they had this guy from Omni. Hotel? Yeah. Omni is like uh, the Ritz-Carlton of the South. Yeah. Like, they're, they're like beautiful yeah, hotels in Nashville, Austin, yeah. all over Florida. So this guy, Kurt Alexander, is the CFO, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in here about how they got through the pandemic as a hotel chain. But he's talking about the secular shift in what kinds of jobs people will even do. They Like, people will not clean hotel rooms, it turns out. I can't mm -hmm. imagine why. And how many hours per day people are willing to commit to working. And he's just talking about this idea that they might have people that work three hours a day. And they might just have to get used to that being the new. That was that uh, part. That part was interesting. That was interesting. And he's like, "We'll figure it out." One thing he was talking about, though, he was saying, "If I have somebody that cleans twelve rooms a day, and then Target is paying the same hourly salary to somebody who just stands in front of the store and wipes down a fucking shopping cart, I lose. I can't get the person to do what I need them to do at that price if they can do something so much easier and less intense." for another company across town. That's a reckoning. Like there should be robots cleaning these rooms at this point. What are we doing? Like like the Jetsons. Um, we're sending billionaires to space. We're sending billionaires to space. We should be sending industrial grade Roombas into hotel restrooms yes. and Madison Square Garden's bathroom. That like that's what we should be working Where's on. Where's the nanotech? Where are the cleaner bots? The you know where is this? This is so bougie. I don't know. I feel like we should stop there. Uh, <laughs> Liana, thoughts on cleaning hotel rooms? It's not for me, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's for someone. It should be for someone. But obviously, you know, the last year and a half or however long it's been has shown people that not working at all and having stimulus checks or doing something where they can work from home is probably better than doing that. He had 20,000 employees pre-pandemic. 
that number dropped to 1,800. They figured out that in almost every state Omni has a hotel in, the workers were better off with the $600 a week from the federal government. 100%. Plus the state benefit than they would be staying working there. That's yeah. a microcosm of basically what's gone on yeah. for a huge chunk of the population. And that's coming to an end in six weeks. I think you're going to start hearing a lot less about labor shortages. Yes. Very soon. I have a, a bunch of clients. They run, they work for a payroll software company. One is down in Florida. Uh, one of the clients is a big restaurant group at mm. any one – lots of restaurants across the uh, state of Florida. Um, at any this one – Jack in the Box? No. At any one given time, their job postings are like pre-pandemic like 8,000 jobs. That's how big the restaurant group is. Right now, it's like 80,000 or something. Oh, my they, God. They, they just can't – nobody wants to be a major d. No one wants to be a server. No no one wants to do any of that, any of that to the reason you point. But give, the, give it two months. I have a feeling yeah. that's going <laughs> to – plus people's kids will be back in school, which is a whole other thing. Besides the money, yeah. how do you commit to going spending a whole day or, or night waitressing or, or bartending when that, there are children at home – on not in school, but this is why I don't like any of like the economic data we're getting right now. I want to look at it, yeah, two months, three, four, five months from now, and then come to a conclusion whether it was inflation or whatever it is you're trying to point here. It's just let's get these benefits to stop. Let's see what the employment numbers look like, and then let's see what the deal is. Agree. Okay, Liana, favorites. What did I say? I can't remember. Oh, here we go. Okay, so you said you like those shirts where when you turn the sleeves up, yeah, there's another I got pattern. it. You know, these are going to be on the Christmas <laughs> gift list for every guy this year. I'll, I'll pump Gambert out of Westfield, <laughs> New Jersey, since yeah, you're all talking about it. There you go. So you guys, some, I think it was one of your guests last week mentioned TIP, the Investors Podcast, which I talked to you about actually last time I was in the office. They have a millennial one as well. It's TIP, Millennial Investing Podcast. I haven't seen it. Okay. It has over two, 2.7 million downloads. I've been on that podcast. It's Robert Leonard, right? Yeah. Have you you've been Is on it? Good? It? He's awesome. It's not yeah. as good as this though. He's like late no, 20s, like, real estate, stocks, motocross racer, really cool guy. Very nice guy. Robert, what, are they, what do they talk about? All different investing topics. My favorite episode came out a couple weeks ago, maybe episode 91, Warren Buffett's number three, Charlie Munger's number one favorite business book of all time, which is Influence. Have you guys read that? Uh, is that Cialdini? No. Uh, I can't I, remember. Yeah, it is. Name. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm rereading that book. It's like, so good. Yeah, it's I you love this podcast it. episode. Really good. So, and I like this particular episode because the he's interviewing the author of the book, obviously, and going over why Charlie and Warren gave him a class A share of Berkshire Halfway, mm. the author, because this book meant so much to them during their business career. Barry had him on? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Masters yeah he told the story. So Persuasion, okay. Influence, amazing episode, great podcast uh, for, you know, anyone I'm going to check out the pod and the all. book. I'm going to read that book this year. Um, it's really good. I'm really good at knowing who wrote a book without ever having read it. That's like my... I, I can almost pretend like I read it. Out of all the classics, it is definitely like one of the better And ones. this episode gives a lot of the major points of the book and influence and, you know, giving a gift before you ask for anything. Lots of sales stuff. So it's great for anyone. What what episode was yours? I, think I was the eighth one. episode, October 2nd, 2019. Back oh. when you were still a millennial. Here's Back when I was a millennial. <laughs> Here's something from that from that book. <laughs> they did a study that if you, they, they studied people asking to cut in line. Hey, do you mind if I skip ahead of you? And like- 75% of people said yes if you provided a reason. Hey, and the reason could be, hey, can I skip ahead because I have things to do? Like, it could be as simple as <laughs> that. Reason. Like, you could I'm just say, can I skip ahead because I need to skip ahead? No, every time. 75% of the people said yes, and it was roughly right. And when you didn't provide a reason, it went down to like 25%. 
So there are ways to like hack people's brains that aren't like super gross salesman-y. Mm-hmm. Like just if you're asking for a favor, for example, I asked a guy on the on the airplane next to me when I took a flight with my wife if he would switch seats with me. Because my wife <laughs> and he said no. It's lonely. But I if I I mean Anyway, so the, I was in the twenty five percent where I gave a reason that he still said no. But what's wrong? What's wrong with this guy? Was it like a middle seat? He, he said, didn't want to sit. Matter, in? He goes, "I need the aisle for the bathroom." Oh, I get that. So yeah. I said, "Okay, fair enough." I didn't push. Are you letting somebody cut in line in front of you if they give you a really good reason? Not I don't really. care if you go into labor. Honestly, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> I, 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 say I, yes. I just will. I'll, I, I think I can sniff out your BS, and I'm going to say know, no. Duncan, you're letting you're letting them in every time. I'm a yes man. I would, I would definitely say yes. Yeah, so he has to cut me. Do you Why? even need a reason, Duncan, or you just be a nice guy and do it? Probably just avoiding confrontation. Avoiding confrontation. Well, I think, like, if I'm with my kids or why, like, I got to show my kids I'm a good guy, you know? I'm oh, like, I'm like that. Yeah. Hey, hey look what we <laughs> just hooked this guy up. Right but my here. kids already know that it's, that it's <laughs> total baloney. Mine are young enough to put on a good impression. I feel like um, it's not very New Yorker to let people cut in line. Where about efficiency? That's inefficient. Yeah, yeah, no, somebody cuts without... In a sneaky way. That's oh, then there's, then oh, there's ways boot, of blades coming booted. out. Yeah, it's yeah. dangerous in New York because then everybody else behind you is going to get aggressive. Everyone, yeah, why, yeah well, they do that on the highway with, a, with an on-ramp. Like, why would you let that guy in front of you? I don't know because I'm not in that big of a rush. Yeah. Don't ever do it again. They say New Yorkers are rude. I just think we're efficient. I think it's about efficiency. Yeah, I think we're dicks. All right, uh, <laughs> Doug, you're the last one. What is your fi- Before we get out of here, what's your – oh, wait, we got Mike too. What's your favorite? Um – so, relating to the you know the parents in the crowd here, uh, check out Bluey on Disney Plus. I'm gonna watch that tonight. You, what? you should. Cart- it's a cartoon from Australia. Uh, everyone's <laughs> a dog. There's seven minute episodes. Very digestible. I cried four times. No joke. It is absolutely beautiful. Everything about the show is gorgeous. Have you shown this to your kids yet, or are you just watching it solo? My wife caught me watching it by myself. You have a five. You have a five year old who's into this. She did 108 episodes. There are that many episodes of this? Well, there's seven minutes each. But there's two seasons, 50-something episodes a season. I'm, guys, I'm telling you, it's just beautiful. I'm a big cartoon fan. You know that, but right, this we're is gonna, gorgeous. We're going we're gonna to jump all over it. Uh, <laughs> favorites, Mike, what do you got? What did you say? Come on, seriously? I forgot. What did you say? I said Joe and Tracy's uh, uh, podcast Odd episodes. Lots. Right. Odd Lots. Um, you going to come up with this on the spot? No, I got something. Okay. The White Lotus. It's that, a miniseries. It's weed? a miniseries on HBO. There was one episode, and I'm very intrigued. It's on HBO? It's on HBO. It was good. You what like is, it? I watched what it. What is yeah. it? What's I'm it about? It. it is about, so you find out in the opening scene that there was a murder at a hotel, mm-hmm. and then they work backwards. And it's about a bunch of rich people at a hotel in Hawaii. And I think it's going to oh, be- Oh, I saw a preview. I liked stuff like this. Mm-hmm. It was, it was wow. like, I love the music, right? It was like very unsettling. Yeah, it's very well done. It was unsettling, and you're not sure why, because nothing really happened. But it's like, it's like jokey. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you, it's, you're it's a dark. big Knives Out guy. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so it's, that's- it's, it's, it's satire. It's dark comedy. Okay. Which I'm a big fan of. I need yeah, a new thing to watch. There's good people in it, too. Great cast. Who's in it? Connie, Connie Britton, Connie Brighton. How do you say it? Jennifer Coolidge. She's, She's crazy funny. and hilarious. She's insane. So 7.1 this is, on IMDb. That's good. You know the you know the the faces for sure. They're not like big names, but you know the faces. They've been around. Yeah. All right. We're definitely going to check that. What is it called? White Lotus. The White Lotus. All on right. H- on HBO Max. Great HBO. favorites. Hey, I want to uh, I want to thank you guys so much for coming by. I I uh, I miss hanging out with people, and it's so great to just like catch up and and hang. And hopefully, everybody in the audience feels like they're a part of of the hangout. And if so, then we've we've done our job. I think we learned a lot today, right? Oh, yeah. um, I think we have new cartoons now to watch. 
And, okay. All right. I'm not going to recap everything we've learned. Thank you guys so much for listening and for all the new five-star reviews. We really need those five-star reviews for the algorithms on all the podcast platforms. If you want to watch clips from today's episode and see Doug dressed up as Prince, if he had a CFP designation, then you can go to uh, YouTube.com slash The Compound RWM. Duncan, anything else I'm supposed to do here? Uh, The other podcast. Yeah, it's enough already. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. (laughs) All right, guys, was that fun? That was awesome. awesome. Let's take a quick break and get it one more time just (laughs) to make sure we have everything we need. Thanks again to our sponsor, Masterworks. Go to masterworks.io slash compound for more information.